All right, good afternoon. Good to see you all. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you to Zoe Community Church. If you're a grandparent, we especially want to welcome you. Um, I forgot it was Grandparents Day. Thankfully, my parents are here. Uh, so I'm glad. Uh, if you know anything about being a grandparent or if you've even seen grandparents, you know that uh, grandkids have a special bond with their grandparents. Uh, they prefer the grandparents to their parents for obvious reasons. Um, so if you're here, just know that your grandkids are really happy to be here with you. Um, it's a blessing for them, blessing for you. And uh, as parents, we look forward to that day, hopefully, when we can become grandparents. That's why I became a parent, actually, uh, so I could be a grandpa in the future. Uh, we're not doing a special grandparents message. Maybe in the future we'll do that. But the thing at Zoe, what we do is we just teach through the Bible, okay? Different books of the Bible, different passages. Right now, we're doing a series called Stories That Teach, and we're looking at the parables of Jesus in the book of Luke, okay? So we're not actually looking at all of them. I said last week, we're expanding it out a little bit. So we were going to do seven, uh, but now we're doing 10. So we're in the ninth one right now, Luke 18, if you want to turn there, Luke 18. And uh, this parable really has nothing to do with grandparents at all or grandchildren, or even really happiness and joy. Uh, it's not necessarily the easiest parable to teach, um, but it's actually one of my favorite parables in the entire book of Luke. Um, maybe that's why it's not the easiest to teach. I don't know. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You might be familiar with it. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. It's pretty short, so let me read it at the outset. And then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it, okay? And then afterwards, we have a photo booth for you to take a picture with your family, uh, and that'll be, that'll be nice. So Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. What kind of house could we build for you? What could we offer you that would be of worth? What could we supply to you that you don't have? God, there's nothing you need. You don't need us. And yet, Father, we come before your holy word. And what we see in here is hope. What we see in here is a message of salvation and good news. Even though we deserve none of it, what we see is amazing grace. So, God, I pray that you would help us to have a higher view of who you are, that we would humble ourselves, as the text says, I pray that we would have a lower view of ourselves, that we would know our own sinfulness, how far we fall short, that we would not avert our eyes 
from our flaws and our failings, God, but that we would see them, that we would see ourselves for who we truly are. And I pray, God, that in light of that, in seeing how high you are, how low we are, that we would see how amazing grace is, that it can bridge that gap, that you would reach down to us, that you would send your son to die as the propitiation for our sins. God, these are not easy things to understand. They're even harder things to accept. But I pray that you would do a work in our minds and in our hearts this afternoon, a work that only you can do. Pray that you would speak through me, not my words, but yours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Two men went up to the mountains to backpack. And as they were hiking and walking around and having a good time, they inadvertently came across a bear. And the bear obviously was angry. The bear was scary. The bear was dangerous. And one of the men immediately took off running. And the other one, looking around, just decided to follow after as fast as he could. And as they were sprinting away... The second guy asked the first guy, you know, the guy who took off, he said, why did you run? We're supposed to stay there and stay still and hopefully the bear goes away. Why did you run away? We can't outrun a bear. Do you know how fast bears are? And the first guy just said, sorry, man, but here's the thing. I don't have to be faster than a bear. I just have to be faster than you. It's an old joke that's been told time and time again, but there's a point to it. And the point is utilized in various ways, but the point is in life, it's often not about how well we do, but how well we do in comparison to others. Let me say that again. In life, it's not, it's often not about how well we do, but how well we do in comparison to others. Maybe you felt this, you felt this deeply in your soul personally. I know a lot of people, some of their childhood trauma revolves around comparison. You tried your best at everything. And yet, in every single area, there was someone else you were compared to by your parents or by your family, whoever it might be. You, you try to be the best piano player, the best baseball player. You try to get the highest grades, but it was always, why can't you be more like your older brother or your cousin or your neighbor or whatever rando that they wanted to compare you to? And maybe... Maybe you are the one who plays the comparison game. Maybe in work, there's a new hire who is ambitious and gifted and, and is gunning for that promotion that you covet. And now you're hyper aware of how that person is doing every day. Before you thought you had it in the bag. You thought you were doing well. Your reviews were good. But now that this guy is here, your rival, every single thing you do, you try to see how you match up, how you stack up with this person or maybe in parenting. You look around at all your friends, all these other moms, and it seems like they have it all together, or at least more than you. Right? Their kids are better behaved. Uh, they seem to have a cleaner diet. Uh, the kids seem to have more fun even with their parents than they do with you, and you feel self-conscious. You feel like people must be judging you. You feel inadequate in comparison. Or maybe you're the other way around. Uh, I know some of us struggle on the opposite side. Maybe you look at other parents and you just shake your head. You say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other moms. You see how their kids are out of control. You see their kid throw a tantrum. You see how their kid has a messy shirt. And even though you don't say anything because it's impolite, it's not socially acceptable, in your heart, you feel good. I'm doing pretty good for myself. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm definitely doing better than average. 
Maybe it has to do with image. You just can't help it, but you're acutely conscious of what people look like. You're constantly seeing how you stack up. Oh, this person looks like they need to hit the gym. I feel a little bit better about my diet. Oh, this person is so fit and I'm average by comparison. I think I better change my habits. We're satisfied with our house until we're invited to our friend's new house. We're happy with our career choices until the super successful person shows up into our friend circle and is always talking about all the deals that they're closing. We're not even thinking about wanting more money until your best friend tells you about that three-week vacation they took on the beach that cost thousands of dollars more than you could ever afford. And even the way we give advice to people, it's always comparison-based or often comparison-based. For example, we tell our kids, be grateful for what you have. So many people have what? Less than you. Comparison. Comparison is a huge issue in church as well. Comparison is at the heart of a lot of the insecurities we struggle with. Comparison is at the heart of a lot of the judgmentalism that goes on in the body of Christ. Comparison is the reason why many of us have relational problems with people who are spiritually our brothers and sisters or so-called brothers and sisters because we're constantly viewing them as rivals, as enemies even, as people that we need to compete against. Because in life, it's often not about how well we do. We've learned and internalized this lesson well. It's about how well we do in comparison to others. Today, we're looking at the parable that in many ways, we're looking at a parable that in many ways is about comparison. If you look at verse 10, verse 10, or verse 11, excuse me. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like other people. Thank God I'm better than even this tax collector over here. He, he literally calls out the guy that's praying next to him. Or verse 14, this man, Jesus says, this man rather than the other. There's a contrast, a comparison. This man was justified. In this parable, even though there are two characters and they kind of don't interact with each other directly, the comparison is the point. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And what's interesting about this parable, let me just say at the outset, is that here he's actually more on the nose than he's been at in basically any other parable he's told thus far. Like if you've been with us, you know that the parables are about everyday kind of generic characters, right? A farmer or a father and a son, or a party at some random house. He's been telling the parables to tax collectors and to Pharisees. But here, here, he incorporates the audience into the narrative. Why does he do that? I mean, can you imagine if I was always giving illustrations and the person I was talking about is in the room? I do that with Eric all the time. But if, what if it was one of you? Right? I want to tell you a story about a guy who always sleeps during the sermon. He sits right over there, right? If I said something like that, I'm not pointing to anyone in particular, or maybe I am. You never know. Or I got an illustration today about a family that's really going through a hard time. Let me give you some details about who they are. I mean, Jesus is almost this much on the nose here. It's Pharisees, it's tax collectors gathering around to hear him. And he says, let me tell you another story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Let me tell you about these people. And therefore, this parable 
funny enough, is actually one of the easiest parables of all the parables to understand. It's very thinly veiled. It's barely veiled. The thing about this parable, though, is that even though it's not hard for the brain, it's hard for the gut. Jesus has been telling these parables. They reveal truth and they conceal truth. They are not always the easiest things to interpret or to understand. But this time he teaches a parable that is very direct, very easy to understand, not because he wants to make it hard for the mind. It's because he needs people to actually deal with it. It's just hard to stomach, in other words. In life, it's often not about how well we do, but how well we do in comparison to others. But Jesus wants to teach us. He wants to get across that when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's not that way at all. It's completely different. We spend so much time thinking about other people and and more so ourselves in comparison to other people when Jesus wants us to understand that this is not even close to the way we should approach God. The parables are stories that teach, and yes, they do teach us about the kingdom, but make no mistake, they teach us to take a good long look at ourselves, not in how we stack up against others, but how we look to the God who can see right into our hearts. I know that we all struggle with comparison. It's how uh, it's ingrained into us. This person is weird. This person is cool. This person is better than us. This person is worse than us. But today, for a few minutes at least, let's put that aside and let's consider the question that Jesus wants us to consider. How do we compare to God? If you went up into the temple to pray, what would he think? If you have ears to hear, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. Sorry, grandparents. But let God's work, God's word, excuse me, do its work in you. Three points today. First point, the Pharisee. This is going to be pretty straightforward. The Pharisee, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, so the audience is given to us. The audience Jesus has in mind are those who trust in themselves that they are righteous and treat others with contempt. In other words, the Pharisees. The audience is the Pharisees, and he's telling them a story about a Pharisee. Now, we've seen the Pharisees throughout Luke. They grumble when the tax collectors came to Jesus. That's why Jesus told the famous parable of the prodigal son. They were complaining. They were kind of discontent about how the tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst in society, wanted to hear Jesus. So he told a parable about an older brother, at least partially about an older brother who represented the Pharisees. But here, he talks about a Pharisee. Now, by this point in Luke, we know the Pharisees. The Pharisees are judgmental. They're self-righteous. They're contemptuous. Now, the word for contempt in Greek is the word exutheneo. Okay, exutheneo. It means to disdain, okay? It's an attitude. It doesn't necessarily mean treating poorly or harshly at all. It's a feeling of superiority. So it might manifest that way. It might manifest in being uh, over, overly nice, patronizing. It's a feeling that others are beneath you. This is the context. This is Jesus. This is who Jesus has in mind as he tells the parable, verse 10. So look at what happens. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, a couple of notes here. It says that two men went up. Okay, they went up into the temple. It literally says they ascend. 
in the Greek text. And I want you to picture this the way Jesus painted it. Okay, the temple in Jerusalem, and really, if you take a step back, Jerusalem itself was a place that you had to ascend up into. Okay, so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember, he said, you're a city on a hill. He was using imagery that everyone would have known because Jerusalem is literally a city on a hill. So no matter what direction you're going to to get to Jerusalem, you have to go up into Jerusalem. You walk up the hills. Now, if you read the Psalms, the book of Psalms, you might have noticed that toward the end of the book, there are these Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Have you heard that before? Have you read that? Maybe you wonder why they were called that. Well, these specific psalms were psalms that the people would memorize. They were put to music. And as they made their uh, annual or semi-annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or other festivals and feasts, they would actually sing these songs. They were patriotic songs. They were songs that reminded them of their history. They would sing the psalms of ascent as they ascended into Jerusalem. And then the temple itself was built on a mount. So when you got even closer to where God's manifest presence was, to the temple of the living God in Jerusalem, as you walked up those steps into the mount, you would sing these songs of ascent. And it was all an object lesson. It was all a reminder that God is higher than us. His ways are higher than us. God is in heaven. We are on earth. We would ascend. You would ascend to try to get to God. So two men ascended into the temple to pray, to seek God, the very purpose of the temple according to Jesus. Matthew 21, you remember he cleared out the temple and he said, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. It's not supposed to be a place of trade. So they go up into the temple to pray. Two men, one was a Pharisee, and this is the first person Jesus introduces us to. Now, I said the Pharisees by now, we've kind of understood them to be self-righteous and judgmental and contemptuous. They were, but you got to understand, okay, you got to understand how people viewed the Pharisees. We view them as the villains of the New Testament, the villains of the Bible, the bad guys, and they did oppose Jesus, okay? So that's not necessarily wrong, but the people in the days of Jesus, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they viewed them differently. Sure, they might've been overbearing. Maybe they were a little bit stuck up in some ways, but let the reader understand the Pharisees were the conservatives of Israel, like I've said. They were the ones who cared about their God. They cared about their people and traditional values. They knew the scriptures backward and forward. They taught the importance of right and wrong. So if you were somebody, if you were somebody who wanted Israel to make a 180 degree turn, to turn back to God, if you wanted Israel to be a people that followed the true God again, then of course you supported the Pharisees. You believed in what they were trying to do. They were trying to bring righteousness back to Israel. So in the eyes of the people, the picture is spot on. Of course, this Pharisee would be praying. That's exactly what I expect him to be doing. Jesus is setting up a contrast here, though. He's setting forth the person, first of all, who most would consider the best of the best, or at least the best we got. I mean, look at what he prays. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's saying, God, thank you that you didn't lead me down a bad path, that I'm not someone who hurts other people, that I'm not someone who strong arms people's money away from them, that I'm not unjust. Thank you that I'm not unfaithful to my wife. Thank you that I'm not a tax collector. More on that in a moment. What we see here is that he's moral. 
Because the point of this isn't that he's a liar. He's someone who actually has tried to live a moral life. He also fasts two times a week. He also gives 10% of everything that he has. He's religious on top of being moral. He's fastidious in everything, in his observance to the law. And here's the thing. You didn't need to fast this many times according to the law. You didn't need to be this minute in how you gave of your stuff, but he wants to go above and beyond. He's serious. It takes a lot of sacrifice to live this way. So here's a question. Here's where kind of the cognitive dissonance comes in. We've seen the Pharisees kind of painted in a negative light in Luke, but if we take him at face value, there's nothing really negative about what's going on here. Okay, so maybe he is a little bit you know, maybe he's, you know, he's kind of bragging, but he's, he's praying to God. He's not saying it out loud for everyone else. And what has he done? He gives thanks, he prays, and he's obedient. So Jesus, what are you getting at? Why are you telling this parable? Well, let me tell you a story. There was a guy we knew in seminary. It's not Eric, okay? There's a guy that me and Eric knew. His name was James Edo. No, it's not. Uh, there was a guy we knew in seminary training to be a pastor. And uh, at Masters, there are a lot of really zealous guys for the Word of God. But this guy was particularly a zealous guy. Uh, I would say uh, that he was um, intense. He, he wasn't afraid to take hard stands. Okay? He wasn't afraid. He wasn't hesitant to call people out. And I remember this discussion happened. And I don't remember if I was there or Eric just told me about it afterwards. Um, but you'll get the point either way. The discussion at seminary was men who struggle with pornography in the church. Okay? And this guy, this zealous guy said, I don't understand how that could even be a problem. It doesn't make sense to me. Are you a Christian or not? Are you born again or not? How could you go after this thing that is so obviously sinful and destructive and condemned in the Bible? Very, very hard line. And someone was like, well, I mean, you can at least understand that we're not perfect, right? We struggle with temptation. People struggle with temptation. And he said, even if it's a temptation, just flee temptation. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says flee it, right? Are you a different person or not? Just resist. I don't struggle with it at all, he said, because I have self-control. I have self-control. God, I thank you that I have self-control. I'm not like these other sinners who struggle with this base sexual temptation. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with, with what? With contempt. What's the problem? It's not the obedience. It's not the thanksgiving. It's not the act of praying. It's the contempt that he feels for other people. Because what is contempt? Contempt is comparison. It's setting yourself up as being above someone else, judging yourself to be superior, judging yourself favorably as opposed to another. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and this first man had great confidence approaching God. Why? Because when he looked at himself compared to everyone else, he was better. He didn't need to outrun the bear. He just needed to outrun everyone else. And he was outrunning them. There's no indication that he was lying. The problem is that he thinks that this is good enough. Now, can I ask you a question? And then we'll move to the tax collector. On what basis do you, 
And don't worry about anyone else here. Just worry about yourself. On what basis do you, do you think that you have the right to be here? And I preach to myself. I mean no offense. I mean this as an actual question. You're like, I just was invited here by my grandchild, okay? okay just think about it, okay? Church is the place, if any place, to think about eternity and life and death and your soul. So just think about it. On what basis is your confidence to think that you could come to worship the God of the universe? Or think about it like this. On what basis do you think that you could just close your eyes, bow your head at any time, and start talking, and the King of Kings is going to listen to you? Why would you have confidence that that would happen? Why do you think that he should even care what you have to say? On what confidence or what basis is your confidence that you deserve a spot in heaven? A lot of people think that because of so-and-so, this and this, that when I die, I'll probably come out ahead. But is that the right way to think? See, here's the truth. Everyone has a basis for this confidence. Even if you haven't really thought about it, you have a basis for this confidence. Either you are assuming that you're a pretty good person. You think that you've done some good things in life, that you're not the worst of the worst. You haven't murdered anybody. I hear that all the time. You think that because you've given righteousness or morality a pretty good try, you've done well this week, that, yeah, you know, I could come to church sometimes and I could learn a little bit about God and there's no big deal to it. There's no fear. See what I'm saying? Or maybe you think that everyone's entitled to God's presence. Maybe you don't think you're better than anyone else. You just think we're all just fine. We're all children. We're all children of God by virtue of his loving nature. This is so common today. We present a God who just loves us and wants wonderful things for us. And this God, he's just waiting. He's kind of just waiting at the door for us to just give him some attention. He's just waiting for us to turn around. He's love struck. He's desperate for a relationship with me. Or maybe you don't feel confident. Maybe you feel like you've been far from God lately. Maybe if you're honest, you used to be more on fire for God before. You were more faithful, but things have changed a little bit. You've been kind of straying. You've been kind of wandering. Maybe there are big sins on your ledger, either in secret right now or in your past. And you just feel like, okay, you know what? I'm not that confident. I'm not sure I should be here. I do have some fear and trepidation. Maybe some of us feel like we need to clean up our lives a little bit before we really start to, you know, get involved in living the Christian life and in church. Well, here's the truth. Regardless of how you feel about yourself, regardless of how you stack up against others or even against your former self, every single person is a sinner. Everyone. And all sinners are separated from God because of their sin. The Bible doesn't teach that all of us are born neutral. A blank slate, some of us sin and we go down a bad path. Some of us are more or less righteous. We've been, you know, on God's side our entire existence. Romans 3 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7 says that there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. And the reason why is found in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's not that we're good people who commit sin sometimes. It's that we're sinful people who sin. It's that our hearts, who we are on the inside, the internal person that maybe no one else sees, but who we really are. 
Our very nature is corrupt and the wages of sin is death. Now just let that kind of marinate, okay, for a little bit. Just let that sink in for a little bit. If this is actually true, then yeah, why do we think that we could just sing to God or pray to him or approach him or say we're on his side? If this is actually true, what makes us think that we could ever say that we're better than someone else? Why do we even think that way? The Pharisee misunderstood the assignment. He thought that it was grading on a curve. He thought he didn't have to be faster than the bear, just faster than the extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and tax collectors, but the bear comes for everybody. Consider yourself. Can you see any of the Pharisee in you? Now, one of the hardest things about this parable, even though it's not super hard to understand, it's hard to feel because the Pharisees, they're ancient history to us. Tax collectors, we don't even experience kind of the same kind of feeling when we hear that term. But if you know the Pharisees, if you know what they struggle with, if you're being honest with yourself, can you see any self-righteousness in you? You don't have to raise your hand or anything. Can you see any self-righteousness in you? Are you the kind of person who's always thinking about what other people have done wrong or are doing wrong or how they're worse than you? Or can you just be honest for one second about the ways that you've fallen short and messed up in your life? It's easy to dismiss the Pharisee as self-righteous and self-deceived. Oh, he thinks he's so good, but actually he's disgusting. He's so prideful. In our society, there's nothing we hate more than judgmental people. Okay, that's kind of the current uh, state of our culture. But don't dismiss him so fast. The word of God is a mirror, and sometimes we've got to look in it and see ourselves. I mean, here's something practical. Think about a relational conflict that you have in your life. An ongoing one, one that just hasn't been able to resolve. When you think about this conflict, are you thinking about all the ways that you contributed to it? Are you thinking about the ways in which you maybe provoked them? The ways where you had an opportunity to make it better, but you didn't? Or when you rehearsed it, are you thinking about all the ways that they wronged you? All the ways in which they said something to provoke you. You had good intentions, but they had the worst of intentions. Think about a time you judged someone. Think about a time you envied someone else. It's the norm for us to confuse self-righteousness with real righteousness. It's the norm to deceive ourselves. And sometimes we look at the good things in our life to cover up the bad things. But I think if we're honest, we're all sinners. And you know, I was thinking about our, our friend in seminary. And I don't think he was lying. I don't think that he had a secret struggle with pornography. Maybe he did, but I think he meant what he said. He did have extreme self-control in certain areas. But I was already here in Texas. This was years after seminary. And I heard that he actually got arrested for domestic abuse. He was actually beating up his wife. I mean, that's real life. I'm not saying everyone's as extreme as that, but to think that you could boast about your righteousness, it's folly. Second point, the publican, the publican. It's an old term for tax collector. I was trying to keep the P's, okay? The King James calls it the publican, so there you go. There are some loose ends after the first point, okay? We can accept that the Pharisee wasn't perfect. It's good for all of us to examine ourselves, to take an, to take an honest look at who we are. We don't want to be contemptuous or self-righteous. But that's not the point of the parable, not exactly, 
Okay, it's who Jesus is talking to, but the point is deeper than that. There are two men who go up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst in Israel. I talked about this when we preached the prodigal son, right? They were the scum of Israel. Because remember, Israel was under Roman oppression, and they hated this, right? They were treated very badly, but the tax collectors had actually abandoned the Israel ship and gone to Rome. Okay, they had joined in on the oppression. They were actually collecting money from uh, their own people to give to the, their enemies. And the worst part about tax collectors in this day and age was that they were corrupt. Corruption was rampant. They would extort people on top of what they had to collect. So not only were they, uh, not only were they betrayers of their nation, not only were they hurting people that they should care about, but they also were stealing. And they had the power of the Roman legion behind them. There's nothing you could do about tax collectors. They would ruin your life. They would bankrupt your business. They would hurt your parents. They would do all these different things and they didn't, they didn't care. They were soulless. They were their own category of sinner. Jesus is deliberate when he chooses a tax collector to be in this story. Now verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now let's break that down. He was standing far off. Now, again, I want you to picture what Jesus is painting here. We talked about Jerusalem. We talked about the temple. But you got to understand that the, that the temple wasn't just high up, but that it was constructed in this way. There are these rings, okay? Not circular rings, but there were levels to the temple. Okay, so in the innermost part of the temple was the Holy of Holies. That's where God's manifest presence was said to dwell, and no one could go in. God is that holy. God is dangerous to be around. He's like a consuming fire. You can't just waltz up to who he is. The high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement. One person, one time a year. And if he messed up, then he would die. Okay, God is good, but God is not necessarily safe, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. Outside of the Holy of Holies was the court of the priests. And only certain people could be priests. They had to have the right blood, the right training. They had to consecrate themselves. They could stay in this second level, okay? They could move around in the second level. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, but they could go around outside of this. Outside of this was the court of the men. Outside of this was the court of the women. Outside of that was the court of the Gentiles. There was a hierarchy to how you could approach God built into the temple that Solomon and then later Herod built. The tax collector, though a Jewish man, stood far off. He doesn't lean into his rights or privileges, you could say. He doesn't press in as close as he can. He stands deliberately far, probably in the court of the Gentiles. He also would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Remember, uh, at this, it's a different culture. They pray differently. Okay, the Pharisee, he stood up and he prayed. Oftentimes you would stand and you would look up to heaven because... That's where God is, or at least it's a lesson on God being above you. But this man would not even look up. He looked down. His confidence is low. He senses his unworthiness. And then he beats his breast. This is a man who's in anguish. There's something that's really burdening him. Okay, he doesn't feel good. And then he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he says. That's it. Just one line. 
He doesn't feel worthy at all. There's this tension in him. He wants to ascend, to pray to God, but at the same time, he knows that he's not unworthy to do so. So without confidence and with fear in the living God, he throws himself in agony at the feet of God's mercy. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the Greek, he calls himself a sinner. But in the Greek, there's a definite article right there. It's actually literally, God be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. You know, the other week I saw The Hiding Place. It's a film kind of recording of the stage play adaptation of Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. I know that was a lot, but it's just a movie. Okay, I saw it. AMC Legacy, okay? It's been a little bit since I shared about Corey Ten Boom, but I love Corey, Corey Ten Boom. The reason I don't, I don't share about her is because I always cry when I share about it, but I'm not going to today. Uh, you never know. Uh, but I bring her up now because I think it's important to consider something. Now, if you don't know who Corey Ten Boom is, let me just get you up to speed. She was a Dutch woman whose family hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. They were discovered. She and her sister were put into a concentration camp. Her father was killed. She miraculously was let out because of a clerical error, but her sister died in one of the camps. And the Ten Booms were strong Christians. They had a conviction that this is what they should do. But the story, uh, the story I'm going to share always stands out to me. It was afterwards, okay, after World War II, and she was sharing her testimony. She was sharing her story, and she always wanted to share the gospel when she shared her testimony. And she said something like, you know, no matter what kind of sinner you are, right, God will forgive you if you place your faith in Christ, right? The Bible says he will take our sins as far as the east is from the west, right? So after she shared this and people loved to hear her sharing, they were encouraged this guy came up to her and this guy was a Nazi guard in the camp. And of course you recognize his face right away, but he's like, I don't know if you recognize me, um, but I, I wanted to hear what you said. And it, it really, um, I think it's wonderful, you know, that God can forgive us. I'm a Christian. Now I know I need to repent of my sins. I need to ask for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And he reached out his hand to just shake hands. He had to shake hands. And what Corey Tamboom says is it was just so glib. I felt like what I was saying was so glib. I can't believe that I went through all that. My sister died, and now you think you could just say, will you forgive me? Stick out your hand, and I'm supposed to say it's okay. Her father was killed by the Nazis. Of course she remembered his face. She was in the concentration camp for months, and now he was just going to put out his hand. And I share this story because, like I said, I don't think it always connects these characters with us today. Jesus is picking people in the audience, but at two extremes. He's picking the person that everyone thinks is a hero. And he's picking the person that everyone thinks is a villain, a true villain. You know, like a lot of times we have like these idealistic views of people. You know, we watch movies and we think we know what bad guys are. But I know when people actually are deeply hurt by somebody, their whole view on that person or maybe even uh, the kind of person that person is changes. This is why people bear grudges. This is why after wars, there is such intense hatred between two countries because you know what the soldiers did. You know the lives that were taken. We think, okay, I don't really like the IRS. Let's move on. No, the reason Jesus said it was a Pharisee and a tax collector is because people hated tax collectors and for good reason. It was through experience 
It was through what they had seen in their lives. Even talking about Nazis, it doesn't really hit that hard in 2023 because nowadays everyone you don't like is a Nazi. There's almost no way that I could say something that would get everyone to think the same way. So you just have to fill in the blank for yourself. And I think about the person that hurt you the most in life or hurt someone you love the most. Think about someone, think about someone that when you see what they did or or when you read about it in the newspaper or whatever it might be, it just filled you with this visceral disgust. You have to understand when Jesus says that there was a tax collector who prayed, it wasn't just the Pharisee who would have noticed this person. Everyone would have been thinking, what's he doing here? What makes him think that he could just ascend the steps like us who've been trying to live faithful lives? I know I'm not perfect, but the Pharisee, I mean, uh, the tax collector, excuse me, doesn't he know that God is holy? Doesn't he know that God judges sinners? Isn't he at least a little bit afraid? Sin separates. I mean, if he says himself, he's the sinner, then he said it. Live like it. The Pharisee isn't perfect. We get it, okay? He's not perfect, but he's a veritable saint compared to the tax collector. And we're getting closer to the point. You know, I remember once some people visited a church, not our church, and they said afterwards, it was all right. You know, they gave their evaluation, their review, as we do with churches. It was all right. We didn't really like the worship, though. And the pastor said something that I'll never forget. He said, that's cool, but it wasn't for you. It wasn't for you. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Even though I look at myself, I know that I don't have the authority to judge myself. He said, it is the Lord who judges me. Why do I bring this up? At the end of the day, the only opinion that matters, that truly matters, is God's. His standard is the only standard that matters. He is the one we must please. He is the one we must answer to. He is the one we must approach. If we care at all about eternal life or salvation or forgiveness or for finding meaning and purpose, notice the tax collector. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't say, you know what? I mean, I'm not the worst tax collector. Let's be real. He doesn't compare himself to anyone. He knows he's the sinner And what he asks for is mercy. In other words, what he doesn't deserve. This is a weird story. It's a strange story. Again, not the hardest story to understand, but you have the good guy, supposedly, and you have the bad guy. The lines are so clear, and yet you know Jesus is getting to something different here. You know that he's building up to some kind of bomb that he's going to drop on us. So many people approach God as if he owes them something. So many people act like they're doing God a favor by showing up. So many people expect God to be impressed by how much better we are than our neighbor or this person next to us. Those who have been listening to Jesus, all these parables, the only way to ascend to God is to ask him for help. You know, it's funny. When you really think about this question, how do we approach God? If we really consider it, the insecure person and the arrogant person are one and the same. They're not really that different. The insecure person looks at others and says, I don't really compare well 
I need to get better, okay? I don't want to share my sins because I don't want to look bad in front of everyone else. I know that it's embarrassing. The arrogant person says, I'm doing great. I'm just looking at everyone else and it makes me feel good. But the problem at the heart of both approaches is the same. It's comparison. Okay, if you really knew who you were, you definitely wouldn't be arrogant. And you wouldn't even be insecure. You would accept that you are in danger of damnation except for the mercy of God. And this leads to the third point. Finally, quickly now, the point. The Pharisee, the publican, and the point. What is the point? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The same lesson from a previous parable, but this time it hits a little differently. It's more on the nose. And in the Greek, it's a little clearer. When he says this man rather than the other, he means the latter rather than the former. So he sets up a hero, he sets up a villain, and then he says, the villain is justified, not the other. It would make more sense to some of us, I think, if he said both weren't justified. Okay, you got to be perfect. Sorry, neither were perfect. The other guy was better, but it wasn't good enough. It would make more sense if they said neither or both were justified, maybe. Okay, so you do good works or this, you know, you got to just say, you know, be honest about yourself and that's a good work too. But he says one rather than the other, the villain rather than the hero. How could this uh, make it make sense, right? Make it make sense, Jesus. Well, let me explain. In Greek, the word for righteous and the word for just are the same. We said this last week, dikaios. It's the same thing. To be unjust and to be unrighteous, it's the same thing. To be just and righteous, same thing. So if you know this, you realize that in the Greek, this word is showing up throughout the parable. Some people trusted in themselves that they were dikaios, that they were righteous. Thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners or unjust, those who are not dikaios. And then Jesus says in the end, I tell you that the tax collector went down to his house justified, dikaios. So what does this mean? This question was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation where the, the very message of the gospel, the soul of Christianity was at stake because the Roman Catholic Church was teaching at this point in history, what they held was that to be justified meant to be righteous, to become a righteous person. Yeah, God would help you. He would give you grace. If you were baptized as an infant, you would have the ability to be righteous, but you better be righteous. You got to be a good person. But Martin Luther, a Catholic monk at the time, tried as hard as he could to be righteous and he just couldn't do it. He lived like a Pharisee, but he felt like a tax collector. He was doing more than this Pharisee. He was fasting all the time. In fact, he had constant and perpetual stomach issues, GI issues, because he fasted too much. He was trying to be the most righteous person on earth because he knew that God required perfection. If he told a white lie, he didn't shrug it off like many of us would. He thought, if I lied then I'm a liar. If he lusted in his mind, he took seriously what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He was like, okay, I'm not an adulterer. I didn't cheat on my wife, but I wanted to. What does that say about me? We might be better than some people, worse than some people, but if we measure ourselves up against God's perfect standard, we all fall laughably Short, how this parable should end is neither of them were justified because neither of them were righteous. But Martin Luther was reading Romans and he came to a stunning realization. 
He had read it a million times, but then he realized that maybe he had misunderstood it. After all, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, excuse me, the righteous shall live by faith. He had thought the righteous shall live by righteousness, by their good deeds, by trying harder. But the righteous, Dikaya, shall not live by these things. They shall live by faith in God. So let me ask you a question as we start to land this plane. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Where was their faith? Because they both had faith. For the Pharisee, who did he trust in? Who is this parable to? For those who trust in themselves. And how is he praying? I did all these things. In fact, in the Greek, you could even translate it. He prayed to himself. He's thinking about him. His confidence was in him. What about the tax collector? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The sinner. He had no confidence in himself. His only hope was the mercy of God. See, here's the first step. No one deserves it. No one is righteous. So you got to have faith in God. But what about the sins? Well, let's... Let's get into this as we land this plane. The word for mercy, when he says, God, be merciful to me. The word for merciful, it's the word halaskamai, which is not the normal word for mercy in the Greek. It's actually a word that means propitiation, the turning away of wrath. It's a theological term. This guy isn't asking for God to just forget his sins or to downplay them or sweep them under the rug. He's saying, God, I need, I need help. I need some kind of sacrifice, some kind of substitute. I need you to turn away the wrath that my sins deserve. So let's bring it full circle. The Roman Catholic Church said that justification means to be righteous. But Jesus said that the tax collector, who was clearly not righteous, who was a terrible person, was justified. So he wasn't righteous. How could this be? Because Luther realized that justification doesn't mean to be righteous. It means to be declared righteous. And this is not from Luther. This is from Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you want to know the point of what Jesus is getting at, no one deserves an audience with God. No one deserves to ascend to the temple. No one deserves to pray. No one deserves to be able to approach God. But... By faith, we can take hold of a righteousness that God gives as a gift. It's grace. It's when we hunger and thirst. It's when we know what we need. It's when we realize who we are. It's when we lay aside our pride and our comparisons to others, and we just recognize that we have no hope except for God. That's that's when we can approach him. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the only way. To ascend the steps, you must lower yourself. To ascend the steps, you must stand far off. Do you get that tension? To go up, you must go down. To become righteous, you must own that you are not righteous. To receive the mercy of God, you must understand how little you deserve it. A self-righteous Christian can't exist. It's an oxymoron. So why do we judge? 
Why do we compare? Why do we feel better when someone else is doing worse? Why do we feel worse when someone else is doing better? That's not what Christianity is. Corey Ten Boom didn't want to forgive that guy. She didn't want to shake his hand for obvious reasons, but she believed what she said, that we're all sinners. She prayed, God, help me. She took out, she took out her hand and she just let God do the work. She said she shook his hand. She barely wanted to. But in that moment when she shook hands and she said, you know what? I do forgive you. She felt like God freed her. She felt like she understood maybe even deeper, not for the first time, but she understood maybe in this way for the first time, what it means that God is so gracious, that God is so merciful, that God is willing to forgive any person. Hear the word of God, Philippians 3.21, but now, I mean, Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What did the Pharisee deserve? What did the tax collector deserve? They deserved hell. Jesus bore that wrath on the cross. The tax collector isn't the hero of the story, obviously. The Pharisee's not the hero either. The hero is the one telling it. We'll close with this. Close with this. John Newton is famous for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, you all know it, right? It's very, it's very famous. He was a slave trader. You probably know this story. He was a slave trader. And then he became a Christian and he put aside that old life and he wrote this hymn. But there's a little bit more to the story. Okay, he actually became a Christian, or he said he became a Christian while he was still in the slave trade. He was a captain of a slave ship. And when he first uh, wanted to become religious, he stopped cussing, he stopped gambling, he stopped drinking, he tried to be a better sailor than everyone else, but he was still doing his slave trade stuff. And if you read, he looks back and he says, I don't think I actually became a Christian at that point when I thought I did. I just became a religious person. I just tried to be better than all the other uh, sailors that I was sailing with, but I hadn't actually considered who I was. I didn't actually feel like I was a wretch. Later on, he grew increasingly convicted that what he was doing was wrong and other things in his life. Even though he made changes, he was a moral sailor. He knew that he needed to change something. So he quit his job. He became a preacher. He wrote a song about it. And you know the words. Let me remind you, he says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And I share this story, but I don't want you to think that John Newton is a hero. He's not. He didn't save himself. I don't want you to think that the Pharisee was a hero like the original people in the audience would have thought. But here's where some people go wrong as I end this story, even though I said it. We think, okay, I just got to be like a tax collector. That's the hero. I know you said Jesus is the hero. The tax collector is not the hero either. He is a despicable person. He is a despicable person. So what did God do? What did God do to show us that it's not about Pharisees versus tax collectors? The greatest Christian who ever lived, more than John Newton, the greatest Christian who ever lived was the Apostle Paul. And you know who he was? A Pharisee. 
And what did he say? He said, I did all these things. I used to think that I was so great, that I was better than everyone else. I was more zealous. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone was a better Pharisee than the Pharisee in Luke 18, it was Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee. And yet, what did he say? He said, I am the chief of sinners. So you got to understand it's not about comparison. It's just about you and God. It's about you and God. It's about humbling yourself before God. It's when you can say with full honesty and freedom that I am a wretch, that I am a chief of sinner of sinners. Uh, God be merciful to me, the sinner. When it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing, that is the ironic point where God meets us. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Twas grace my fears relieved. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that we would take in what the gospel means. I know many people here are Christians, that they believe in the gospel, God, but I pray that you would help us to internalize it, that you are a great God, that we are great sinners, that our need is great, and that Christ is a great Savior. God, I pray that we would see uh, see that we have no hope, God, without him. And I pray that that would lead us to his feet. God, I pray for those who don't know you here. God, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts. God, I know, God, I know that you did this for a reason, that you met a Pharisee on the road to Damascus, that you changed his entire life. And I know that you can do that with people in this room, anyone. So God, I pray for salvation. I pray for sanctification. I pray, God, most of all, that Christ would be exalted, that we would humble ourselves to that end. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.